Hi, this is Dr. Ziegenbein, your favorite rheumatologist and fibromyalgia expert coach. Fibromyalgia has the capacity to rule and even ruin your life. I am here to show you how to stand up to it, how to be your fibromyalgia boss once and for all. All right, so I'm very excited today to present my guest on today's podcast, Dr. Daniel Claw. He is a professor of anesthesiology, rheumatology, and psychiatry at University of Michigan. And Dr. Claw is here today because he has been doing research on pain for over 30 years. And his group, his research group, uh, was the first one to shed light on knowledge about brain participation in pain in patients with fibromyalgia. So welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So that's where I would like to start, if that's all right, talking a little bit about functional MRIs. And your group was the first one to start teaching the world about role of brain in pain. So I would like you to take us there for a few moments to start our podcast with. Yeah, so I was uh, at that time a rheumatologist at Georgetown University. I was interested in fibromyalgia and we had received funding to study fibromyalgia largely because we had gotten funding to study Gulf War illnesses, the people that were deployed to the first Gulf War that developed otherwise unexplained pain and fatigue and memory problems. And in our grant applications, we proposed that uh, people with fibromyalgia in the general population, that that was really what happened in the Gulf War, that, that some of the people who were deployed to the Gulf War because of the different types of stress associated with deployment would, had developed something very similar to fibromyalgia. And that we actually, in those studies, proposed that fibromyalgia patients would be positive controls if you will, and that the functional MRIs of the brains of the Gulf War veterans that had these same symptoms would look exactly like fibromyalgia, and both of these would look different than controls. But most people are unaware of the fact that main reason or that the thing that gave us the opportunity to do the first functional MRI studies in fibromyalgia is they were serving, if you will, as positive controls in Department of Defense-funded mm -hmm. studies to help figure out what happened to these individuals that were deployed to the first Gulf War. And um, I was unaware too, so thank you for shedding light on that. What were the findings? The functional MRI was just coming into being, and I was a rheumatologist. I didn't know anything about functional MRI. So one of the things that I did early on, eventually become a very successful team scientist, was reach out to people that knew how to do things scientifically that I didn't know how to do. And one of those people was Rick Gracely, who at that time was at the NIH, which is just up the road from Georgetown. And he was at the NIH learning how to do functional brain imaging, because this looked like a exciting technique to use for pain processing. And so Rick began working with our group on functional brain imaging while we were at Georgetown and he was at the NIH. And then ended up moving with our group to come to the University of Michigan in 2002 when we brought our group to the University of Michigan. I had gone to both undergrad and medical school at Michigan, and that's why it was appealing for me to come back to Michigan. But there were 12 of us in total that ended up moving oh, from wow. Washington, D.C. to Ann Arbor 
and we were called the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center at that time. We had created a center at Georgetown because someone gave us, uh, Mr. Calcagnini gave us a nice philanthropic donation that allowed us to create a center. And then that center, because the entirety of us moved really to Michigan, that we retained that name and we still are the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center. But embedded in that has been that historical interest in fatigue as well as pain and things like sleep and other types of symptoms we've always been quite interested in other than just the pain symptom. Right. So the first studies in functional MRIs, I started finding out about it in, after my fellowship, and that was very helpful in my understanding of fibromyalgia. Can you summarize the early findings, the, all the cool pictures that became since you know published in multiple papers? Yeah, the first functional MRI study really did was we gave people a stimulus to their thumbnail and we just pressed with pressure on their thumbnail. And we asked how much pressure it took before that started hurting. And as you might imagine, it took a lot less pressure for the fibromyalgia patients to start hurting than it did for the healthy controls to start hurting. So our hypothesis was if fibromyalgia is real, if these people really are having pain, when they say they're having pain, when even with that low intensity, then we should see when we push on their thumb, we should see areas like the primary somatosensory cortex and the secondary somatosensory cortex light up because that's what you can really see on functional brain imaging. You just see that there's increased blood flow in that region of the brain and you infer it's because of the task you gave the person in the scanner. So what we could see is that with a low intensity stimulus that a normal non-fibromyalgia patient would just feel as pressure to their thumbnail, not pain, that when we gave that kind, that same amount of stimulus to the healthy control, they said they didn't hurt. And we could see on their brain that they weren't lighting up S1 and S2, the brain regions we know are involved in pain processing. But when we gave the fibromyalgia patients that low intensity stimulus, that they said it hurt, we could see those areas were lighting up and we could get the healthy controls to light up those same brain regions, but we had to give them twice as much pressure to their thumb. So all that first brain imaging study showed is that they really were more pain sensitive, that they weren't just making this up, that at a much lower intensity of stimulus to their thumbnail, we were seeing their brains were in pain. And that was a big deal because it was, you know, for a lot of people, you know, that might've been on the fence, it was like, you know, they're not making this up. And that finding has now been corroborated, you know, hundreds of times. But at that time, functional brain imaging was just coming into use. We were one of the first ones. Other people had used it in healthy, normal individuals, but we were one of the first ones to use it in a clinical pain condition like fibromyalgia. So, and I had a question whether you were able to see in real time or whether you like the, re, the images were reconstructed in order to see when they were lighting up or you were able to see it in real time as the people were applying pressure? No, we can't. Even now with functional MRI, you know, people don't really understand that when we publish these studies, we're publishing groups of people with fibromyalgia versus groups of people without fibromyalgia. We can't right now at the individual level, put someone even in a functional research scanner and like immediately real time say, you know, we think you have fibromyalgia. We don't think you have fibromyalgia. We think we'll get there in the no, not no, too no. distant future, but it's not, you, you don't get real. It takes a long time to analyze the 
images okay. after. No, that's and, what I meant. I, I didn't mean to diagnose fibromyalgia as a result of scanner or the images on the scanner. I meant whether you were able to see the areas in the brain, in the cortex, lighting up in the real time. No, the, the bright colors on the slides are more yes. a visual effect <laughs> that only occurs months later with processing and things like okay. that. Those colors you make up because they're it's a Z-score with the, you know, the density of this color is the, is how strong that signal is. But in, and of course you make it brighter yellow and red if it's more intense, right. but that's more a statistical test you apply well after you have the data. We don't have the ability to, you know, real time in a scanner, see that type of thing even now. So these images and these findings, first of all, they provided validation to all the people who had pain, but they were not necessarily always believed to or when they were evaluated by physicians because physicians couldn't find the reason for their pain on exam. There was no, so validation was one, but then how did it propel the field of pain research over the past 20 years? What did it allow us to do that we didn't know before your research has shown that the pain is real? What has happened? If it were not for functional MRI, I don't think there's any chance that the international group of pain researchers would have voted two or three years ago to formally accept this third type of pain, nosoplastic pain, as very legitimate pain mechanism and, you know, acknowledging that this pain is coming more so from the central nervous system. That's a really, really big deal for, and I, I'm really proud of whatever role our group has had, and it has had a significant role in getting that concept to be accepted, but it's just because there's an overwhelming amount of science now supporting that. So it's not that, you know, it's really because study after study after study has shown same types of neuroimaging findings. We can even see some of these findings in children before they develop fibromyalgia, the children that are going to go on to develop fibromyalgia. So, you know, they're really robust, reproducible findings. And it, but it wasn't until the advent of functional MRI that we had a research technique that powerful that allowed us to look into the living human brain. Other organs, you can biopsy them and we, and you can, you know, structural changes you can identify, those are more important, but in the brain functional, a whole set of diseases that are sort of neural based, but are not from brain damage per se, were are able to be really unlocked by it's, and it's not just one kind of functional MRI, there's proton spectroscopy that's allowed us to look at the levels of glutamate and GABA in different brain regions, which we know are really important excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters. There's functional connectivity measures that are different than those original types of studies that we did, where you gave someone a stimulus in the scanner and you looked at how they responded to that stimulus, even a resting state scan. If a fibromyalgia patient just lays in a scanner and is resting and is not doing anything, that resting state scan will be quite different in them than in someone who doesn't have fibromyalgia. And that's looking at the degree to which different brain regions are either too connected to each other or not connected enough to each other. So there's a whole set of things you can do with functional, with MRI scanners, not just the first kind of functional MRI, the connectivity measures, the voxel-based morphometry measures, which really look very closely at the size and shape of brain regions. And you see that in people with these brain regions, where the pain is playing a prominent role, 
a lot of the brain regions involved in pain processing get smaller. And we think that's from neuroplasticity, that we think that that the brain really remodels and the, your brain is actually trying to get rid of your pain by reducing the size of some of the brain regions that have a tendency to increase pain processing. And the only brain region that we see that often gets larger in people with these kinds of pain conditions makes a lot of sense. The primary somatosensory cortex is the brain region that helps us localize where pain is. It tells us, you know, remember the homunculus in medical school mm -hmm. of the person, but there's a different part of that brain where you, where the, you know, you can, where the hand is, is, or the arm is, or the leg is, and that gets bigger in people with chronic pain. But that's what you'd expect, like the, what the brain's doing, it's, it has a lot of pain and it's trying to localize the pain more, whereas it shrinks the size of some of the other brain regions, because the brain and a lot of our body systems are always trying to come back towards homeostasis, come back towards the middle. Right. And we also, by, parenthetically, we think that's what the reason that if you do a skin biopsy in people with fibromyalgia, you often will find what's been called small fiber neuropathy, but what in fact is just that the nerves are a little bit shorter and there's not quite as many of them. It's not really neuropathy per se. We think that what that means in fibromyalgia and because it's found in almost every chronic pain state is it's a non-specific finding in chronic pain. And we think that that's what the peripheral nervous system would do in someone with chronic pain. It would shrink the axons because it's trying to mm. reduce the pain. So studies showing that you can induce those same changes in the axons in rats by either increasing the levels of glutamate in the brain or reducing GABA, which is what is characteristics of fibromyalgia. So we've experimentally really tried to show that some of these changes, you know, that when they, that when the things were first published, it was scary because the first studies, it was like, oh, you know, people with fibromyalgia have you know, like brain atrophy or the brain, and it's not brain atrophy in general, it's not damage, it, it probably is just remodeling of the brain and what we now call neuroplasticity. So I was going to mention, just to clarify that, that pain classification now includes this neuroplastic pain, just to explain there is a nociceptive pain, then the neuropathic, my listeners may not know, then neuropathic, and then the neuroplastic, the central brain pain that we are, or central uh, nervous system sensitization that we are talking about. I was going to talk about for a little bit. So these areas of brain are more highlighted or they light up on these functional MRIs. Can we talk a little bit about what is the theory right now? What's causing it. I know that you use analogy with the acoustic guitar and an amplifier in terms of when you're explaining to patients why they have more pain, but can we talk about what is causing the brain to have this volume increase on pain or what's causing this sensitization? Well, first of all, it's not ever going to be a single thing. It's going to, this is clearly multifactorial. We know that there is genetic strong genetic influences, you know, in conditions like fibromyalgia and other chronic overlapping pain conditions. So like a lot of diseases, there will be sort of familial or genetic, you know, people that are at higher risk or at lower risk. We see this running very strongly in families. We also know that environmental factors, we know that low socioeconomic status, a lot of stress, not sleeping well, not being physically active, are all associated in sort of epidemiologic or population-based studies with 
fibromyalgia. And we think that sort of neurophysiologically and neurobiologically sleep is really important going back to, you know, some of the very early studies that were done in fibromyalgia by Harvey Moldowski, where he showed that he could replicate some of the symptoms of fibromyalgia by taking healthy college students and sleep depriving them. But the, those were early studies where he, you know, promoted the fact that maybe fibromyalgia was, you know, if you will, a primary sleep disorder. And we went away from that thinking of fibromyalgia and it's still, it certainly still isn't a primary sleep disorder, but as people um, in our research group, like Chelsea Kaplan and others mind some of these large studies that have been done and that are available looking at children starting at age 10 um, and following them as they age and seeing, you know, the kids that develop pain versus the ones that do not develop pain in multi areas of the body. What we see is that the children who are going to develop multi-site pain, if you will, sort of the juvenile equivalent or adolescent equivalent of fibromyalgia, they very often develop the sleep problem well before the pain. And the order we often see it is that the sleep problem comes first, the memory problems come second, the pain comes third, and then the mood problems come last. That's another thing interesting about the relationship between fibromyalgia and psychological factors and fibromyalgia and things like catastrophizing is our group is really trying to shift the thinking into the fact that these are always going to be bi-directional, but we think that a lot of the catastrophizing that you see in people with fibromyalgia, which means that people, you know, think of their pain as being like terrible and there's nothing that they can do about it. Or even the anxiety and depression that we see in people with conditions like fibromyalgia, we think a lot of that is the result of it not being taken seriously and not being treated well when they're young. And they accumulate psychological factors and comorbidities, especially when, you know, they present with these kinds of symptoms, you know, when they're in their teens or um, in their 20s and people are either dismissive of these symptoms or give them the treatments that don't work. And so we're also trying to reteach people to not think, you know, that when you see someone with fibromyalgia that does have a lot of psychological factors to really think of that many of those might be the consequence of having pain and feeling bad and everything like that, rather than the way most providers have been trained is that the psychological things might be more the primary problem and the fibromyalgia secondary. Mm, okay. But once they get to the point where they have pain, it almost doesn't matter what came first, right? It doesn't matter though, but it does, it is under important to understand that, you know, maybe that means we have to treat sleep a lot more aggressively in chronic pain patients. Mm -hmm. if, if in these studies, the sleep problems typically come before the pain, maybe we haven't really, you know, been nearly as aggressive as we should be in treating and, sleep in pain patients. And when you say treating sleep, do you also mean like obstructive sleep apnea or just helping people get a refreshing sleep period with medications or other interventions? Mainly the latter. Okay. I, I, mean, I think like things like cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is called abbreviated CBTI, has been shown to work as well for chronic pain patients as the cognitive behavioral therapy program specifically developed for pain, CBTP. Mm -hmm. So, but again, we rarely think of sending our pain patients to cognitive behavioral therapy for their insomnia, but some of those things can be really helpful to really work on their sleep. And first with non-drug therapies, sleep restriction, you know, sleep timing, go to the, going to 
simple things like even, you know, waking up and going to bed at the same time every night, the things that are called, you know, sort of sleep hygiene, but it's more advanced than that. Cause if you just give someone, you know, one of those little handouts on sleep hygiene, they don't ever do anything and they don't ever really sleep better. So you, you have to take it seriously as a provider as well for the, the, for the people on the podcast that are providers, if you want your patients to work on sleep or to try several new non-pharmacologic therapies, you have to make it clear you think those are as effective and as important as any of the drugs you might be able to give them. And so it really is, these are, when I give lectures, which I do often to scientists, I say the two biggest advances in the pain field in my career have been the legitimization of nosoplastic pain, of this third mechanism of pain, and of understanding how effective non-pharmacologic therapies are to treat pain. But even the number of government agencies do really good systematic reviews every few years of the different therapies, especially post-opioid epidemic, of all the different non-drug therapies and what's the evidence base for the, the use of these therapies. And there's been an incredible increase in evidence that a whole host of non-pharmacologic therapies, some of which we used to be dismissive of because they came from Eastern medicine, like acupuncture, yoga, meditation, tai chi, mindfulness, um, can be really effective for pain. And all of those have about the same effect size as any drug we can give them, but they have less side effects. And then there's all the other you know, the warm bath therapies from Europe and the, you know, all sorts of other non-drug therapies that again, we've historically, chiropractors in the US, we've been dismissive, allopathic medicine's been dismissive of, but you know, that works too. So all these non-drug therapies, my last slide of almost every talk that I give is the therapies that now are reimbursed by the Veterans Administration healthcare centers in the United States. And it's like 20 therapies, acupuncture, yoga, tai chi, mindfulness. And these all are really helpful, but they only work well, just like our drugs only work well in about one out of three people. Each of those non-drug therapies only works well in about one out of three people. So our real challenge now, we don't call those complementary and alternative therapies anymore because that they're not complementary and alternative. These are the things we should be using front and center. So they are now called integrative therapies. And we really have to figure out how to integrate those into our care in our practice, whether it's a rheumatologist like you that might be, you know, primarily taking care of patients with autoimmunity, but even those patients with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and those diseases, even after you're done treating their inflammation with our really cool drugs, they still have a lot of residual symptoms, a lot of nosoplastic pain, that would really benefit from these non-pharmacologic integrative approaches. And I, that's really where the biggest challenge, I think, for both patients and providers is to get the third-party payers to reimburse more for those, develop care models that, that really are integrative, that figure out in your community, you know, which of those providers you have that are good, refer to those providers and, and create communities of providers that are all speaking a common language and really using a contemporary model of managing chronic pain. But if you try to do it by yourself, it's too difficult. But if you, you know, if you're seeing a patient every couple months and there's an acupuncturist you work with or acupressure, you teach them how to do acupressure or send people to our website. If you do nothing else, send them to our website. It's free. 
It's called painguide.com, all one mm-hmm. word, P-A-I-N-G-U-I-D-E.com. And we get that because we're doing a lot of research now with that website and derivatives of that website, just getting this stuff directly to patients so that they can use these self-management strategies and try these different things on their own. These things can be so helpful. And that's what my biggest advice to patients that have chronic pain is try, look at that list of 15 or 20 different non-drug therapies that you can use to treat chronic pain and pick two or three of them that resonate with you. It's like, yeah, I've always wanted to try that. I've always wanted to try that and try three of them this year. And I, and I guarantee you one of them will work. If we're using like Eastern-based therapies, it would be things like acupuncture, acupressure, yoga, Tai Chi, any kind of meditation or mindfulness uh, has a really good evidence base. Now, in the realm of physical therapy, any kind of exercise, we used to think it was just aerobic exercise. Moving is really important, getting people moving. And in fact, I really think that providers should learn that when they're talking to chronic pain patients about moving, they shouldn't use the word exercise. It's too intimidating. Use the word activity. So a lot of them have elements of relaxation. They have elements of slow controlled movements and of stretching. They have elements of stress reduction. You know, there's entire programs, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, Now there's acceptance commitment therapy. There's an, there you wanted to talk about pain re- reprocessing. Yeah, therapy. I wanted to know your opinion uh, yeah. about, did you have a chance to see the picture of the M- regular MRI? I think it was, or it might've been a functional MRI of, of the boy that Dr. Gordon, the psychologist treated as part of the whole intervention of, uh, he had abdominal pain and he had, and they did functional MRI before the treatment. Then he did, I think eight or 12 or 10 sessions and they did MRI after did, were you able to see that uh, image or not? No, I didn't see it, but it, the improvements in fMRI just mean that the person improved. That's what makes the fMRI improve. It doesn't mean you can do that with any number of treatments. So mm-hmm. what we really should be doing is looking at the data and saying, well, you know, what proportion of people getting in the NIH funded study that we did with Mark Lumley and Howard Schubner, who are two mm-hmm. of the bigger advocates of now what, again, they're calling pain reprocessing therapy, but it was the same it was called emotional awareness therapy in that study. We did find in a study that the people who got that type of therapy compared to regular old pain-based cognitive behavioral therapy, that on average, the people who did improve had larger improvements in their pain. Like, you know, we had people that got 60, 70, 80% improvement in their pain instead of 30 or 40%. Mm -hmm. But we didn't see that the proportion of people that improved was any different in cognitive behavioral therapy than in emotional awareness or what they're calling pain reprocessing therapy. So I've said this, and I will continue to say it, is that I think that it works really well. That type of therapy works really well in a subset of chronic pain patients. Mm -hmm. And I think that it probably works well in people that, that do have a lot of trauma or stress or things like that, I think that that can be helpful, but I don't at all agree that it should be touted as the therapy that everyone with conditions like fibromyalgia should get. I think a lot of people appropriately resent actually, you know, the notion that their pain is entirely driven by psychological factors because the data don't support that. The studies don't support that. I strongly disagree with the notion that pain reprocessing therapy or whatever they want to call it should be first-line therapy for people with conditions like fibromyalgia. 
Yeah. And I, I don't think that they are trying to say that, at least that was not my impression when I attended the course and read the book. And I also don't think that the way I take it is that they're not saying that it's psychological factors that are the only reason, but I think the way he's, and I don't want to pair like big words out of context. The way I understood is that the brain is on high alert which then is causing or activating neurons to start the pain process. And it doesn't matter what put the brain on high alert or what, what led it to have the amplifi- higher amplification setting. That's the way I understand it. I don't think it is implied in the... Right, in the- right. But again, I think that what, where I... Some of that treatment usually is getting people to talk about traumas, journal mm-hmm. about traumas, things like that. And again, I'll say again, I think it's a subset of yes. individuals with chronic pain in whom that's relevant and that it that I think that's incredibly helpful in the people in whom that's relevant. But I actually think that it it can further stigmatize the people with conditions like fibromyalgia in whom that's not relevant by sort of badgering, if you badger them and it's like, well, I think you need to go to a psychiatrist because all of this kind of pain is that kind of pain. And there there are providers that think that way. There are people oh. who practice pain reprocessing therapy that would say that it should be used more broadly. And I, that's mm. where I'm just saying, I think it has a place just like a number of other therapies that, that have a place. I agree. And I actually, I think at least the groups I hang out with or people, they actually completely 100% support or endorse what you are supporting, which is uh, approaching chronic pain conditions, specifically fibromyalgia with with non-pharmacological therapies or approaches like acupuncture, yoga. And the really trouble is to figure out where to start, like which one is the first or which one is the second. I have been recommending the book way out to several of my patients and they have found it helpful because of the language used in the book is resonates with them like how they explain how the pain is explained that the brain is on high alert for whatever reason and they already have had pain for long enough that they figure out what is their next step like what's the hierarchy or where to start when we are you know we correctly diagnosed, and this is both patients with inflammatory conditions and superimposed central sensitization, or it's just fibromyalgia without any evidence of inflammatory process or neuropathy. Like where do you yourself or your team, how do you start directing these patients? What I usually suggest that people do is first like collate around you, you know, that if you, if you had that list of 15 or 20 things, you'd say, well, I know like five of these people around, you know, that I could refer. Oh, okay. I know a acupuncturist that I would really trust okay. is not going, or I, and I know a chiropractor that's going to give them a couple sessions and not try to, you know, rope them into lifelong chiropractor treatments. But again, you providers that you in that realm, yoga, and then give that to the patient and say, okay, here's these five things. And I don't, we just don't know right now. We're doing studies, literally Mm -hmm. NIH funded studies, looking at how can we tell who's going to preferentially respond to physical therapy versus acupuncture versus, so maybe in some future state, we won't be just flying blind, but right now, both for the providers and for the patients on the podcast, you just have to try like new things because there's a one in three chance that they'll work. We have a bunch of things that there's about a one in three chance that we almost all the non-drug therapies have about that effect size and about all the drugs don't keep opioids away, but the, you know, gabapentinoids and the tricyclic drugs and the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors will work in 
you know, about one out of three people, but it's the same as, but we have 15 or 20 non-drug treatments that work in one out of three people. So that's where there's more opportunities, especially for a lot of the patients that are, you know, that we've already gone through all the drugs. They've been through, this is where the opportunities are for the patients is, you know, now that all these things that are now legitimate, you know, yes. that, that, yeah, it's like these are, they work. If you like the information shared, please share with someone who might benefit from it too. As always, I love if you comment or leave a lovely review. You can find me on Facebook under Dr. Martina Zygen Fibromyalgia Coaching, or you can come to my website at www.winningatfibromyalgia.com. I look forward to next time.